So welcome to Agility at Work. I'm working solo uh, today. Kim Leary, co-host, uh, has other obligations. Uh, she should be with us uh, early in the, in the coming year, which will be absolutely great. But I must say uh, something great right here and now is that uh, I'm about to connect with William Urey, a dear friend and a longtime colleague. And we're going to talk about the genesis of and impact of uh, the book Getting to Yes, which he co-authored with Roger Fisher and subsequently uh, Bruce uh, Patton, published 40 years ago uh, this year. Absolutely seminal book that uh, has had lasting impact, and that will continue to be true for goodness knows uh, how long. So let me cut this short and uh, invite William to come right in uh, right now. So, William, it's fabulous to uh, be connected here. Two-thirds of a continent away, you're out in Colorado, and I'm back in your own uh, old stopping grounds of eastern Massachusetts. It's the 40th anniversary of Getting to Yes, which you co-authored with Roger Fisher. I know Bruce Batten came in for the second edition and beyond, but uh, 40 years have gone by and the impact of that book is, uh, is still deeply felt. I want to say congratulations and thank you for the work. Looking back at it, what was the genesis of, of, of the book? I know a little bit of your, of your background, but, but how did you and Roger get together to write it? I was an anthropology graduate student, and I was wanting to apply anthropology to something practical like war and peace. And so I, I went to talk with Roger, and uh, I got the idea of writing up a research proposal to do work in the, on the Middle East peace process if I was a fly on the wall anthropologist. And I wrote up a paper, and I sent it in to Roger one January evening late at night, I got a call and said, this is Roger Fisher. Yes. I've read your paper. I took the central chart in the paper and I sent it to the Assistant Secretary of State for the Middle East. So Roger was well-connected, that's fair to say. He was very well-connected and, and he was not shy about reaching out. And he said, and I told him he should look at it. And I, and I got hooked on the idea that, wow, you know, ideas, frameworks that you could come up with could actually be of use to people in real life situations like a hard situation like the Middle East conflict. So Roger and I started working together and then fast forward, got a request to work on interview mediators, international mediators for a guidebook that we called uh, International Mediation, a Working Guide. And we wrote up this little guidebook only to discover the audience for a guidebook on international mediation is about six. There were about six international mediators at the time. I said to Roger at one point over lunch, I said, why don't we take the same book and expand it into a book on negotiation and negotiation in all contexts? You had had some experience, I think, either in practice or in your research on uh, labor disputes. I'm remembering correctly about uh, minors. You've got a good memory. Yeah, My, I was looking 
I, you know, I was tired of just, you know, studying this. I wanted practice and, and I, you know, it was hard to get practice internationally. And I met a professor whom you may remember as visiting professor at Harvard Law School by the name of Steve Goldberg. Sure. And he was uh, telling me, you know, I've got this tough situation. I'm an arbitrator, but I got a call from the union and management at a national level saying we're really worried about this coal mine in Kentucky where the miners are going out on wildcat strikes, strikes in contravention of the contract. Now, it seems like every week uh, the, the company sued the union and the judge in his infinite wisdom jailed the workforce uh, oh. for a night. And, you know, people are packing guns and there are bomb threats. And we're afraid that this situation will, might lead trigger a nationwide coal strike. And so they asked Steve if he could help. Steve said, well, I don't know anything about mediation. I'm an arbitrator. I tell people what to do. He then said, maybe you could help me. And I said, I'd be delighted. So he, he and I flew down to Eastern Kentucky and Steve had hired a helicopter. The mine was somewhat remote. And when we got down there, management and the union were, there was so deep distrust between the two of them that they would not even sit in the same room. So Steve and I had to sort of meet with the union leaders, meet with the management, meet with union leaders. For about six weeks, we shuttled back and forth and went back and back to Boston and back and forth. And after six weeks, you know, after listening to the union, listening to management, you know, we had some proposals for how to address some of the issues that the union felt were of great concern. And they were both willing to sit down and they sat down for about three days. We worked with them and they finally reached an agreement and it was like, they were so surprised and gratified that they'd reached this agreement. And there was only one little detail, which was that the agreement had to be ratified by the miners. Uh, the next, and, and the vote took place the next week and it was nearly unanimous in rejecting the very agreement that their union leadership, all 10 of them, had just painfully negotiated. And oh. it was a big shock to, to the union leaders, it was a shock to management, it was a shock to us. And it was a big lesson for me. One of the key points in negotiation is that in any negotiation, there's not just one table, you know, we're union and management, there's many tables and there was a union, you know, internal table of the miners and there was a, you know, an internal table for management. And if you don't kind of step back from the situation, go to the balcony, zoom out for a moment and see the larger picture, you can find out that you're leaving out critical stakeholders, in this case, the miners. And uh, that lesson has stayed with me for uh, the ensuing 40 years of really going to the balcony, seeing the larger view, asking who's at the table, but also very importantly, who's not at the table, who's a stakeholder, who, if they're not included, might very well become a spoiler. I have no experience in the Mideast, and yet I've learned from your work and the work of other people as well. I've learned things that apply very generally to negotiations and what you just described in terms of the back tables and so forth, I think is more the rule than the than the exception. I wonder whether, I mean, there, there were some books, very few, on negotiating in specific domains and specific contexts, uh, but you really set out to write a uh, a general book here, you and uh, and Roger. Is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement. It was a general book that kind of 
I mean, the bestsellers on negotiation at the time were books with the title. There was one called Looking Out for Number One. <laughs> there was another one called Winning by Intimidation. And what Roger and I proposed was a revolutionary idea that negotiation didn't always have to have winners and losers, that actually there could be the concept of mutual gain that both sides might be able to do, have their essential needs satisfied. And that was the core question we took in getting to yes was, was what's the best way to dance? If you have a, you know, an issue, you want to make a deal, you've got a serious dispute. How, what are the dance steps for getting to uh, an agreement in which neither side would have to fundamentally give in, but both sides could actually have their needs satisfied, their essential well, needs at least. This may be a little bit of inside baseball just between you and me and a few others, William, but I, I didn't associate Roger really with negotiation um, much before that. I took a course, uh, this was probably 70, 273 at Harvard Law School uh, on negotiation that Jim White from Michigan taught a lot of simulations and so forth, uh, fairly low on theory, I think it'd be fair to say. But I also took a law and public policy course that was decision-making, Howard Rafa and so forth, Tom Schelling, uh, Steve Breyer, among other people, quite a, quite a lineup that looked at the if you will, the technical microeconomic aspects of negotiation. And even there, you could see how trading on differences, there's certain things I'd really like to have, William, but that you value even more. Um, and if I can take a breath and grant you some of that must have for you, that gives you more liberty to accommodate me on, on other issues. So it wasn't it wasn't just pie in the sky, but but there are economic models that, uh, at least for those things that can be measured, relationships is another matter, but uh, there are economic models that say this isn't make-believe, this is real. That's absolutely right. And, uh, and Roger and I learned and benefited a lot from the work of people like Howard Rafa and McCursey and Walt, Walton and McCursey and um, John Dunlop. Mm -hmm. um, in, in labor and so on. And Roger had been working in the area of, you know, international conflict resolution. That was his, that was his field. Um, he was an international lawyer, as you recall. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was a, it was a, a leap to go from that to, um, you know, negotiation in, in the broader sense. But he was always fascinated by the art of influence and, uh, and how do you persuade? How do you persuade yes. others? The arts of persuasion. And that's what led us in the direction of negotiation. And for me, I was, I was particularly, I was interested too in international conflict and how do you stop wars? And negotiation seemed to be the principal alternative to actually bloodshed or, you know, in my concern to, you know, either we we're going to negotiate our differences with the Soviets or we we're going to end up with a situation in which everyone would lose very badly in the nuclear holocaust, which, as you recall, was not an insignificant possibility back in those days. Right, right. We obviously face our uh, 
our own challenges today. I may have said something in passing that wasn't clear earlier, though. I mean, there you are in Colorado, and here I am on the East Coast. Uh, I was very fortunate. Somehow or other, uh, you or Roger uh, knew of me and sent uh, a manuscript, uh, which I was able to use at the University of Colorado, where I was a visitor in a negotiation course that they uh, had me uh, teach. So uh, I was an early adopter uh, uh, on this, and that, as far as I'm concerned, lucky, lucky me. You were the first one, Mike. You were, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was serendipitous and it's serendipitous that we're having this conversation on the 40th anniversary of both your course and the publication of Getting to Yes. You were the very first one who tried it out, other than Roger and myself, who were teaching a, a, a class at, uh, I was assisting him actually in teaching a class at Harvard Law School. So all of this in the spirit of the name of the podcast, Did Juliet Work, all of this is is unrehearsed, unscripted, and, and so forth, but we're getting into history. I suggest we stay there for just a moment. Publication date for the hardcover was 81, probably the paperback came out a year or two later. That was about the same time that the program of negotiation, Harvard, MIT, and Tufts, came together as well. And for our, our listeners, uh, we were so lucky then, William, with the at least monthly, sometimes more frequent uh, meetings we'd have, we'd get to talk with colleagues who were in all sorts of different fields. You've mentioned international diplomacy, others who were uh, doing work in labor and so forth. We had psychologists, lawyers, economists, and so forth. It was really a very vibrant time. It was. It was really, it was truly interdisciplinary. And what was interesting was we had something, what gave birth to the program of negotiation was something called the Harvard Negotiation Round, uh, Harvard Negotiation Seminar. And what it was, was, you know, you had psychologists, as you were mentioning, environmental specialists, you know, Larry Suskind, Frank Sander, uh, Tom Schelling, you know, you yeah. had some of the real giants, economists, uh, anthropologists, family lawyers. And, uh, and what we found is we would take a different case, a different dispute every time we got together and we'd all figure out. So what would be the best advice we could give to someone about how to begin to approach or resolve this particular yes. conflict? And what we found is that, you know, though we came from different fields, our, we had kind of a common bank of insights into the process of how human beings deal with their differences. And, uh, and there was a lot of ahas, like, oh, you use this term, we use that term, but it's basically the same insight. And that's really, that, that giant aha is what gave birth to the idea that, hey, let's start a center, a program on negotiation to trade best ideas and to really think about, can we come up with better and creative ways of dealing with the more difficult disputes, whether it's in, you know, in the family, in the workplace, or, you know, in the world? I remember one. I, sometimes we refer to these as devising seminars. Does that ring a bell? That's right. That, that was Roger, actually, had started something called the devising seminar, which was the idea of tapping into our creativity to kind of brainstorm, you know, when there were these insoluble problems. And I remember you coming together with uh, with Larry Bacow, actually. Whatever became, oh, he's the president of Harvard. That's right. <laughs> That's true. 
And he still remembers it. You know, I, I talked to him maybe a year or two ago when, and when he first became president, he remembers those moments very warmly and remembers he was, uh, it really struck him at the time as it struck all of us that we were, we, we'd struck gold somehow, intellectual gold. Uh, and the amazing thing is most interdisciplinary efforts like that, you know, they go on for a couple of years, through two, three, four, five years, and then they peter out. But the program of negotiation is still alive and vibrant 40 years later. And, uh, and it turned out that we really did stumble onto something that is of immense interest to people around the world, whether you're in the workplace, whether you work in government, or whether you're in the family or, or any other domain, that negotiation turns out to be you know, one of the single most important competencies for any human being and operating in the environment of today. Well, just, just to underscore that, I mentioned earlier about how the lessons are often generalizable. I remember two particular seminars, and more may come to mind, and there's something we could ponder today. Uh, one was somebody who's involved with the great problem of uh, long-term storage of very dangerous nuclear waste that is often kept you know, near reactors temporarily, but it can't be there for uh, centuries, maybe not even too many decades. And uh, not in my backyard, right? Even if you're a governor of a state and somebody calls, we'd, we'd like to see if we can induce you to store all of this terribly dangerous stuff. That's a telephone call that a, uh, that a governor does not want to be known to take. And I think that we talked about a way in which there could be some kind of group of governors that would have a collective interest because they were hosting reactors and so forth at finding a place where this could go. And what you would want to do is to give people who have to make tough political uh, decisions some cover that there was a shared interest and that there'd be a shared solution. The other one I think of was by an FBI hostage negotiator, and I'm not speaking of Chris Voss, this was uh, decades ago, who presented the following problem. Somebody goes into a bank expecting they're going to walk out five minutes later, you know, with a fortune. And the alarm has been triggered. The police have come. They're all around rifles. So how do you start a conversation with a psychopath who's having a bad day? I remember that that's the way in which the hostage negotiator put it. And obviously, it isn't the usual negotiation. And yet, sometimes we're negotiating with people who've had bad days, and we have to find a way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's amazing that 40 years later, you know, those cases still stick out because we would, that, that really illustrates the, the range, you know, of cases from that to, you know, the Middle East to, to South Africa, apartheid in South Africa, which was still raging at that moment and to, to the Cold War and, uh, or to a judge who was, you know, brought his, dealing with small claims it was a really broad range of disputes. And what we found is that, that if we talked just, if we just talked in terms of our terminology of our discipline, psychology or law or whatever, you know, you know, we got lost in definitional disputes, but if we took an actual real life case and said, and asked the question, what's the best advice you can give a hostage negotiator mm -hmm. or a governor who's getting that call, then, 
in clear, lucid language, we could take everything that we knew and, and the collective intelligence of the group was much bigger than the intelligence of any single individual at the table. I want confirmation or correction on this. Everybody, I believe, understands the mutual gains aspect of getting to yes and uh, books in that, in that realm. But I don't believe, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, that the phrase win-win actually appears in the text. Am I right or wrong or aren't you sure? I think you're right. Uh, getting the yes actually popularized that concept, but didn't use actually the term win-win. Uh, we, used, we used mutual gains. Instead, we thought at the time, I mean, we thought, you know, there, there was in game theory, the idea of win-lose games, and there was the idea of win-win, but we were already going in the face of a lot of skepticism. And we thought if we just, if we use the term win-win, we'll get even more skepticism. And we were trying to kind of win over a skeptical audience who said, yeah, but that's not the way negotiation works. You know, one side, you know, it's, it's about the basic question is who's winning the negotiation. And, and as Roger put it so eloquently, asking who's winning the negotiation is a little bit like asking who's winning your marriage. <laughs> if you're asking that question, your marriage is in serious difficulty. So William, it's serendipitous, as you said, that uh, we should be talking on the 40th anniversary of the publication of, uh, of Getting to Yes. What's striking to me is not only the millions and millions of copies of the book that have been sold around the globe, but how in illuminating this aspect, this central aspect of negotiation, so many people have been able to uh, draw on it, expand it, uh, apply it in different situations. It really was a groundbreaking book. So the even people who haven't read it may have read something else or heard something else, and the influence has been, uh, I think, unmatchable. So I want to congratulate you, uh, Roger, of of course, whom we miss uh, dearly, and uh, in later editions, uh, Bruce Patton as well, for this absolutely stunning accomplishment. So thank you so much for sharing the story with us and, uh, and meeting with the Agility at Work uh, listeners. Well, thank you, Michael. It's a, it's a huge pleasure. I'll just say that, you know, one of the things we said in, in getting to yes at the beginning was, this is all stuff you probably already know in some way or another. What we're doing is kind of, you know, putting it together in a framework. It's what I would call uncommon sense. It's common sense that we uncommonly apply. Fair enough. Well, thank you again.